Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. Um, uh, you'll find the uh, verses uh, on, on the uh, pink notice sheet. This is one of those profoundly disturbing passages. Jesus challenges all our ideas about goodness and about wealth, and we find ourselves stripped naked in front of him. He challenges our ideas about goodness. The man calls Jesus good teacher, and Jesus cuts him down. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. That is radical, because Jesus is in fact saying there is no such thing as a good person. There is goodness, but nobody can really be described as good. That's quite hard to take, especially for this man who was counting on goodness being the ticket that would get him into heaven. He claims to have kept all the law. All these things, he says, I have kept since my youth. And there's no reason to doubt that claim. Look at what Jesus lists. Murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, defrauding others, honouring your father and mother. This man could say, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I've not borne false witness, at least in court. I've not defrauded anyone, well, at least in a significant way. And I've honoured my parents. I've bought them a house and I've looked after them. You could say, each one of us could say, whether we have done those things or not done those things. But if you have done what is right by the law, then all that does is make you someone who is good at doing things right by the law. All it means is that you conform to the requirements of society. And that's a very good thing. But it doesn't make you a good person. The goodness that God is looking for is not surface goodness, but heart goodness. It's not just about behaviour, it's about what is going on in here and in here. And often, often it is people who we think of as good, who we might describe as good people, who would be the first to say they are far from good. One of the leaders who inspired me significantly uh, was a man called John Stott in the United Kingdom. He was an immensely godly, gifted and humble Christian Bible teacher. He died a few years ago, and on one occasion he was introduced to his audience with a glowing, glowing reference. He stood up and he replied to the person who had said these lovely things about him. Thank you very much. And then he turned to the audience and he said, but if you could look into my heart, you would want to spit in my face. The point is, and even though you may find this disturbing, 
I also hope you will find it liberating. However good you are, you will never be good enough to get into heaven. No one is good. Listen to that. No one is good, says Jesus, except God alone. And do you know, I think that this man knew that. Yes, he had ticked all the boxes, but he knew something was missing. That is why he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? And then secondly, Jesus challenges ideas about money. In Judaism, and to be honest, in our world today, having money is considered to be a blessing, a mark of God's favour. If you have money, you have power. You can make choices. You can go where you want, do what you would like to do. You think you have security, at least until those things happen, which not even all the money in the world can prevent from happening. But Jesus here seems to be saying that having a lot of money is not a blessing, but a curse. It prevents people from entering the kingdom of heaven. How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, verse 23. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You might find in some of the older commentaries about this them speaking about a very, very small gate into Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And for a person to go into it, they would have to get off their camel and go down on knees through this gate. Actually, that gate never existed. <laughs> it's a total fabrication. Jesus here is telling something that is impossible. Think of a needle. Think of an eye of a needle and think of a camel going through the eye of a needle. It doesn't work. There is something that speaks to many of us here. We may not have the wealth of an oligarch, but by whatever global standards we choose to use, many of us are wealthy and money traps us. It trapped this man when Jesus said to him, one thing you lack, sell what you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. He couldn't do it. I guess Jesus is asking him, how much do you really want to enter the kingdom of heaven? How much do you want eternal life? How much do you want to be saved? Those are the three phrases that are used in this story, being saved, entering the kingdom of heaven, inheriting eternal life. In other words, because this is what this is really all about, Jesus is asking, how much do you want God? How much do you want to know God and know his goodness, know his joy and share in his life, a life that is far, far greater than death? Do you want that so much that you are prepared to renounce everything that you have in order to get it? You have to give this to Jesus. He was utterly consistent in this teaching. 
He speaks of the kingdom of God as a uniquely precious diamond. Someone sees it and they want it. They want it so badly, so, so badly, that they go back to their jewellery collection, which contains some immensely precious gems, and they sell all of it so they can buy this one exquisite diamond. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It is so precious that you would sell everything you have in order to get it. And Jesus tells people, he's just done this a little bit earlier on, people who want to come and follow him, and they say, but first let me go back and bury my father. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. I mean, perfectly reasonable requests, you would think. And Jesus says, no, if you go back, you can't be my disciple. He teaches the crowds that if they do not hate their fathers and mothers, but then he goes on and says, and hate even your own life, you cannot be his followers. He talks of the need to give up everything that we have if we wish to follow him. We need to get this before we can enter the kingdom of heaven we need to be prepared to renounce everything everything that we are everything that we have everything that we do we come to jesus with two suitcases our goodness suitcase and our stuff suitcase and we say I want to follow you and Jesus says that's great but first of all you've got to get rid of this We need to stand naked, alone before God, with nothing. That's the symbolism of what happened at your baptism. If you have been baptised, and if you haven't been baptised, that is what will happen at your baptism when you are baptised. As we are washed with the water, in many churches here, you will be submerged under the water. We don't normally do that here, but it is a symbol that I am dying. I'm dying to this world, dying to my ideas of goodness, dying to my stuff. And we cannot come alive to God. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven while we are still clinging to this world and to what it offers. But please don't despair. There are also some tremendous reassurances in this passage. First of all, Jesus looked at this man who had come to him 
and he loved him. It's a really stark verse. He loved him. And Jesus looks at you and he loves you. Yes, he asks you to do something that seems incredibly difficult, impossible. Actually, it isn't. All he's asking you to do is to die. To die to yourself. Actually, all of us can do that. But it appears incredibly difficult. But he does it because he loves you. He delights in you. He longs for the absolute best for you so that you will become the person who you, he created you to be. He deeply desires to be in communion with you, to know you and for you to know him. And he invites you to come into that communion with him. When we surrender all that we have and all that we are to Jesus, we are surrendering ourselves to one who deeply loves us, who loved us so much that he was prepared to go to the cross in order to win us. And then Jesus offers this man a new life. He says to the man, sell what you have and come follow me. He invites this man, not only just to give it all away, but then to become one of his followers. And remember the context here. Jesus is with his disciples. When he says to this man, come and follow me, he is saying literally, come where I come, go where I go, camp where I camp, eat what I eat, learn from me. This man was invited to speak Jesus' words and do Jesus' deeds. And for us, it's not just the call to give up the things that we cannot give up. It's the invitation to live a new life. A life that is lived with the Lord Jesus. As part of his family. Speaking the words of Jesus. Doing the deeds of Jesus. And thirdly, Jesus promises that whatever we leave for him, however big or little, it will be returned to us. Probably not in the same way that we gave it, but many times over in a different sort of way. And not only then in heaven, here and now. You see, this is not just about eternal life. This is about beginning to live the kingdom of God here and now in this world. And this is a promise that so many people, you can read about, read it in verse 29 and 30, this is a promise that so many people have found to be true. I think of people in history, people like St. Anthony, uh, St. Francis or St. Augustine, who actually took these words at face value, who did sell everything, who did move into community, uh, into monastic community. Uh, I think of uh, people, other people, who have become monks or missionaries. People like C.T. Studd, who um, plays that rather odd English game called cricket. 
and he played for the English national cricket team. Uh, and he was from a wealthy background and he inherited a, a great deal of wealth. Uh, and he heard God's call to go and serve him in China. Uh, and he sold it all so that he could go and work and uh, was part of the China Inland Mission. Later, I believe, that became OMF. Or I think of somebody like Jackie Pullinger, the young woman who about 40 years ago heard God's call just to go and work somewhere somewhere far east. She didn't know where. She went to talk to her vicar, uh, and her vicar said he gave her some advice which he would never, ever give anybody, but he felt it was right. He said, if you really feel God is calling you to work overseas, and the thing about Jackie Pullinger was she was a flute player, a musician. There isn't much demand on the mission field for flute players, so nobody would take her. He said, get on a slow boat going to China and get off where God tells you to get off. And she got on the boat and when they got into Hong Kong, she felt it was right to get off. And she had an astonishing ministry with God giving to her uh, a single woman, many, many, many children many spiritual children, many children who were on drugs who came off. You can read about it in the book Chasing the Dragon, which is one of the great Christian classics. And for others, I think of people who have given up so much in order to be obedient to the call of God. Think of a lady in one of my previous parishes, a lady uh, who uh, inherited uh, uh, £120,000. She said, I'm on my own. Why do I need it? I don't need it. She said, I want to give it. And she did. I think of somebody, again, who served in that same parish, uh, Ross, who worked in the city. He was on an eye-wateringly large sum of money each year. And he heard God's call to become a vicar. Vicars don't do badly, but they don't do nearly as well uh, as people at that level. Even our own archbishop, the man who is our archbishop, he worked for the oil company at a high level, and then he heard God calling him to go and train for the ministry. People who have given up maybe just a little, but God has just given back and back and back in different ways. Please hear me when I say that this passage is not the entire teaching of the Bible on personal wealth. I don't think that everyone is called to sell everything. That was certainly not the assumption of the early church. But the key point is, is that if money and the pursuit of money has got a hold on you, for the sake of God, for the sake of yourself, you have to give it up. Clement of Alexandria wrote uh, in a book, an article called Salvation of the Rich Man. He lived about 1,700 years ago. Um, he said this, if one is able in the midst of wealth 
to turn from its mystique, to entertain moderate desires, to exercise self-control, to seek God alone, and to breathe God and walk with God. Such a man submits to the commandments, being free, unsubdued, free of disease, unwounded by wealth. But if not, sooner shall a camel enter through a needle's eye than such a rich man reach the kingdom of God. Each ruble note that you have in your pocket can either be an astonishing blessing or it can be a dagger in your spiritual heart. Fourthly, I'm not sure whether this is reassuring or not, but Jesus also promises us that there will be persecution. I guess it is a reassurance that when they come, we're on the right track. And if they don't come, then we can thank God, but also re-examine ourselves and ask whether we're living for the world's standards on goodness and stuff, or for God's standards. And fifthly, says Jesus, you will receive eternal life. Eternal life. Imagine that you are this man who came to Jesus. You are one, let's say, he is one of the wealthiest people on this planet. And Jesus looks at you and he loves you. And he says, you can buy eternal life. You've bought many other things. You can buy eternal life. It's very expensive, though. It will cost you $100 billion. You go away. You get your accountant or your accountants, your companies, and you think, I could do it. I could raise $100 billion if I sold everything. My companies, my houses, my football clubs, my islands. It will strip me of everything and I will have nothing. I could end up homeless. My reputation will be shot to pieces. People will laugh at me. I will probably have to beg I will certainly have to throw myself on the mercy of others. Is it worth it? Would you do it? We're not talking about 15 or 20 extra years of life. We're talking life in the kingdom of God, where there is rightness, mercy, peace and joy and fulfilment and you will see Jesus and he will see you. We're talking life with God and we're talking eternal life. Would you do it? And this is not a theoretical question because Jesus looks at you as you are with what you have. And he says to each of us, you can buy eternal life. Don't worry, it's not going to cost you a hundred billion dollars. 
because I know you don't have $100 billion. But it will cost you everything that you are and everything that you have. Is it worth it? It is eternal life we're talking about. Will you do it?